1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothcuff, coming to you from New York City, and we are here... Uh, as we sometimes do, to discuss a book that we think is important, we think is the kind of book uh, that all of you, uh, as our listeners, ought to uh, read. Uh, this book, As It Happens, Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy, is written by Jeffrey E. Garten, who is a uh, former Undersecretary of Commerce I worked with him there. He uh, is a former dean of the Yale School of Management. He's a professor at the Yale School of Management. He's an accomplished author. Uh, he and I work together in the private sector too, and therefore it's a double pleasure. It's a great book, and it's great to see you, Jeff. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here, um, and uh, and it's a great book. It's an it's an amazing accomplishment of research, of reporting, of analysis, of storytelling. It's everything you want in one of these, and uh, uh, you should be extremely, extremely proud of it. Joining us to discuss it here today, we have two friends of ours. One, Rana Faruhar of the uh, Financial Times, uh, an author herself, and as I think I said on a podcast not too long ago, one of the smartest people I know. How are you today, Rana?
0: I'm, I'm very good, and I didn't pay you to say that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you, you didn't um you didn't even know i was going to say it uh all three of you folk uh qualify in that in that small group and uh and and joining jeff and rana uh another friend bob hormatz former undersecretary of state um uh, uh in the obama administration he handled economic affairs there he's held many senior level jobs uh in the government and in the private sector and um uh, He's, uh, he was just a young boy when Jeff's story starts, uh, then working in the White House as a, as a, as a young economic staffer. So you're gonna be able to provide us with some perspective uh, from having been there. How are you doing, Bob?
2: I'm doing very well, and I will dig deep back in my memory and try to come up with a few vignettes, uh, which Jeff has captured brilliantly in the book. And I must say, it really is a brilliant book because the consequences of the decisions made there are affecting us even today. And I think that link between yesterday, which is Camp David, and today is a brilliantly uh, engineered one. And we woven together brilliantly by Jeff.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And you know, Jeff, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a, I don't know, a storyteller's objective, a, a historian's objective to find a moment. That becomes a prism for the years before and the years after, uh, particularly if it's a kind of a condensed moment, so you can sort of tell in, a, in a, a you know by TikTok, you know as, as hours go by, um, how decisions were made that that really sort of changed the world. And you've found such a moment, a meeting that took place at Camp David between Richard Nixon and his top economic advisors, including. Uh, George Schultz, uh, um, Pete Peterson, uh, Arthur Burns, who was the head of the um, uh, Fed, uh, John Conley, um, and um, all—you know—great, complicated, um, historically significant personalities. What do you why, why this book right now though? Why why three days at Camp David, a story of
3: 1971, in 2021? Well, um, first of all, thanks a lot, and I'm just so delighted to be here with with uh, Bob and Rana, two people I've known for a long time and have interacted with. Um, Bob was actually very instrumental in my being able to tell this story because even though I uh, interviewed people who were there at Camp Camp David, um, Bob was in the background. He was um, working for Kissinger. And uh, I was able to see through the documentation how much Bob actually influenced Kissinger. I mean, the, the fact is Kissinger didn't have a great interest in international economic affairs was very dependent on Bob. And if you look at Bob's uh, memos at the time, it's really remarkable how somebody so young um, could have had so much influence. But um, to your question, um, I I wanted this moment to represent the end of an era. Um, The more I looked at it, the more I realized that when those guys got to Camp David, and the, you know the, their seminal decision was to delink the dollar from gold, uh, which was really uh, one way to look at it—the end of the Bretton Woods era. Um, it was it was a a, a point of massive transition, um, and it, you know one one way to look at it is it was the end of the Marshall Plan mentality. It was the point at which the US basically said, we can't hold up the world the way we did. And we can't manage the global financial system totally on our own. And being and having the dollar linked to gold meant we had to do things we really didn't want to do domestically in order to make the dollar uh, keep the value uh, at 35 dollars an ounce of gold and other countries have to do more so it was really the point at which the u.s began to become not a normal country but let's say a more normal country where it basically said that the countries like west germany and japan had to uphold much more of the burden and today i think we are coming to an end of an era as well Um, I think by definition, it's very hard, and I think it would be kind of phony, to be able to describe the era ahead um, in any detail. But I think it is possible to say that the current engines are slowing down and something else is going to replace it. Um, And so to me, the analogy between these three days at Camp David when real Seminal decisions were made. And today is to say, once again, the U.S. economy is in major transition. Once again, we're running large budget and trade deficits of the kind we didn't envision. Once again, the dollar is under enormous pressure um, from uh, both Europe and and, uh, China, um, both of which would really like both of which resent the dominance of the U.S. economic system, particularly the way we throw around sanctions, which we're able to do precisely because we own the plumbing of the, of the global financial system. And on top of that, we're entering a digital era. or well, We're in an era, but it, in my view, it's just begun we're at the very, very beginnings of something that is very hard to understand. Whether it's digital currencies that will be issued by central banks, whether it's cryptocurrencies that are today kind of where the internet was in 1994, that is very controversial as to whether these are going to be currencies or not, how they will be used, how they will be regulated. and of course we have China in the background, which is a real question mark in terms of how it will use, it's its growing. Um, so I think that we're, we're, we're ending something and we're beginning something just as happened at Camp David.
1: A, a perfect uh, way to frame it. And one of the reasons why I think this book is relevant to, to everybody, Rana?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say, and I was, I, I'm a little jealous, I have to say. I'm in the midst of working on my own third book, and, you know, you see a book like this, and it's got narrative, it's got the big idea, but it's also got, you've got the moment, because, um, you know, as Jeff, as Jeff says, I think there's two really timely reasons that this book matters now. One, we are on the verge, I think, of an entirely new monetary system. Whether it's going to happen in three years, five years, ten years, we don't know. But there are several things in play. China is going its own direction. We have a one-world, two-systems paradigm that isn't changing. The digital RMB is going to be a really important part of that. That's already something that the Chinese are using through the the, the Silk Route. Um, uh, you know, the One Belt, One Road um, uh, pathway. Uh, they're doing a lot of trade in digital RMB. There's something like 27 different central banks around the world, I think, that are experimenting with digital currency. And even if you look at cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are basically pretty speculative, there's also an argument you can make, and I have made this argument in the FT, that they represent to some extent, a kind of a sense of, can the current paradigm hold? Can the Fed keep printing money? Can we keep um, you know, having the dollar be the global currency? in the way it is right now forever. Some people are betting not only in gold, but in crypto that no, it can't be. And so we're at that pivot point again. And at the same time, you have a president, you have a, an administration like the Biden administration that is fundamentally resetting America's relationship with the rest of the world. I mean, you know, and Trump was kind of the, um, the, the, the uh, the structure breaker in some ways, but Biden is taking a lot of the same ideas around trade, around the idea of efficiency versus re- uh, resiliency, needing to do more at home, trying to kind of um, bring allies into that paradigm in a way that is is really, really different. We haven't seen anything like this in decades. And in order to accomplish those goals, he really needs the dollar to continue to be the global reserve currency for at least the next four years. Uh, you know, two years at least, four years, hopefully. So it's this incredible pivot point, and there's so many lessons. And I want to hear Jeff's thoughts about what the lessons are that Biden should be taking, actually, from all this.
3: You know, I thought a lot. Of, I thought a lot about the lessons, and uh, you know, I'm not a professional historian, but I also recognize the danger of making analogies that are too tight. Um, Having said that, though, I think there are some lessons, and I'm going to ask Bob to comment on this because he was there. Um, But I think one lesson is if you, you know, there was a decision made to de-link the dollar from gold, and that decision was made over a weekend but there actually was a tremendous amount of underlying analysis that had been done by a guy nobody had heard of, but it was a, a, a fellow named Paul Volcker, <laughs> who was really just a, you know, he was a technocrat, uh, undersecretary of treasury, um, but he really understood the, the global financial system. And he led a group, which they call the Volcker Group, um, but there was tremendous amount of analysis about what would happen, what you know, what what will happen to the dollar, what's the impact of the rise of West Germany and Japan, the the, the rise of the what was called the European Community and eventually the European Union. Um, you know, how do we deal with the increasing amount of capital flows at the time, which nobody had envisioned. Um, And this analysis, uh, you know, the military has has an expression, um, plans are nothing, but planning is everything. It gave the Nixon administration uh, a lot of confidence that they had really looked into the global financial system and the possibilities for the future. So one lesson is, um, you know, listening to Rana, and I agree with her 100%, a lot of changes are coming. Um, And I hope that the administration is doing its homework in the way that the Nixon administration did. Um, The second is that if you looked at who was around the table uh, when Nixon made the decision, they were people with, uh, uh, I would say, they were real public servants, as far as I could tell, had no ulterior motives at all, but they had very different views. And one of the things that Nixon was able to pull off was to channel these views into one policy. But there was, you know, there was Paul Volcker who really wanted. Uh, everybody wanted a devalued dollar because the dollar was overvalued. But some of them wanted the dollar to be realigned and then fixed again against other currencies. Mm-hmm. Others like George Shultz, who, again, was not known at the time and obviously became one of the great statesmen of the 20th century. He was riveted on changing the whole system and putting it on a floating currency basis. Um, And and then there was Pete Peterson, who really thought that all the emphasis on currencies and trade openings should be subordinate to having an industrial policy in which there would be more investment in advanced technology and and more investment in the skills of the workforce. Hmm. Um, and, And, you know, the value of having this kind of diversity is the decision that was made in the end didn't hold. In the end, after two years, the whole thing fell apart again. But the U.S. government was ready because it had people who had argued all the different views. And so there really weren't any great surprises. So I think that's the second lesson is who's around the table. Mm. Is it diverse enough, is it skillful enough? And the third, and this is where where Bob really comes in. They managed to put together not only an international economic strategy, but a foreign policy strategy as well. Mm. And Bob wielded in his boss, uh, Henry Kissinger, who, after the decisions were made, was absolute, absolutely necessary in making sure that the alliance didn't fall apart over very, very different views about the dollar and, and, and some real acrimony about how the US had made this decision. So I I'd, I'd say these are three lessons that are really important. Planning, the people around the table, Mm-hmm. And the importance of being able to coordinate foreign policy and economic policy.
0: I'm taking notes because you're helping me write my next column.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I thought I think that's a, gr- a great analysis, and I think one of the things that comes through in this book is uh, is is Nixon's skill in managing this kind of thing and sort of getting the most juice that he could out of people with very different opinions and and kind of brokering a solution. Um, Bob, comment on that and maybe a question for Jeff.
2: Well, I think the analysis you've heard from uh, from Jeff and Rana is very much along the lines of the way I saw it then and, and see even more clearly now the implications of, of what happened. And I do think just to pick up a couple of points that Jeff just made, the planning process was extremely important. This was a group of people who went to Camp David, but they had worked together for many months, in fact, a couple of years, uh, in what Jeff referred to as the Volcker group. And I would go to those meetings, was always impressed with the fact that while you had major differences, as Jeff has indicated, you also had a group of people who got used to working together and they, where they differed, they differed, but they had a process of, of trying to uh, emerge from meetings um, with some general consensus on where they were going. They had a, a general sense of structure, um, and even though they didn't know where it was all going to come out, they knew they had to work together to deal with the various considerations that the individuals brought to bear on the conversation. Schultz Paul Volcker, who in my job, I sort of spent a lot of time with on the phone virtually every week, and and Burns, who was right across the street from the State Department, I would go brief periodically on uh, various issues as as we saw them from a foreign policy point of view. And they would talk amongst themselves as well. And that that planning process and the fact that these people were used to working together was uh, extremely important. And the second is that we were able to pull together in the end, um, not just the U.S. team at Camp David, which Jeff has admirably outlined, but he also goes on and talks about the importance of working with allies. Um, And Nixon understood this. Nixon understood you could push so far to get what America wanted, which was a a lower value for the dollar, which was critically important to him and to everyone in the group, Um, but also keep the alliance together. And there were a lot of pressures on the alliance at that point. And Nixon, several months later, had planned a meeting with uh, with, with Brezhnev and wanted to make sure that there was a united alliance and not major divisions in the alliance when he went into that meeting. So uh, that's where he brought Kissinger in. Kissinger, on the other hand, didn't want to take on a powerful guy like John Conley, who was pushing for a very, very tough outcome. But he and Nixon knew that at some point, the United States would have to make certain concessions to the Allies in order to maintain unity uh, within the alliance, not just because the, the system didn't work just on the basis of of American interest, but needed to bring in the Germans and the Japanese and other countries who were used to relying on the United States and convertibility of their currencies into dollars and then into gold, and that needed to change. And over a period of time, they understood they needed to revalue and that the system itself couldn't uh, sustain itself in the way it, it had been. So in a way, today, we're a little like where we were. We know that the old system is sort of, I wouldn't say, falling apart, or the old order is now deteriorating. One would might say it's, it's already deteriorated, but we don't know what the new one is going to look like, and we don't know what role the U.S. leadership is going to play in forging that, but we know one thing, and that is we're going to have a formidable adversary, which we didn't at that point have. China at that point was a very minor trading power, and the, the Russian economy was not a major one. So now we're doing it in the environment of where another um, economic challenger is is, is is in our midst. We also know that you can't do it alone, um, and we're going to need to move alongside of our allies. So these are some of the things that I think you can pick up from reading this book and understand that in the end, as Jeff said, it, it, it fell apart. But the alliance and the need for the U.S. and its major friends and trading partners to work together to craft a new system was, I think, on the minds of everyone as they work through all these difficulties. And and that's that's what we're gonna have to do today. And I think the Biden administration, unlike its predecessor, understands that the U.S. can't do it alone, although it can lead, but it needs to have a lot of support from other countries to make it uh, uh, the economic order a, a sustainable and an effective one.
0: Hey, hey, David, can I can I jump in and ask ask a question of um, of Jeff and Bob on on this? Um, I'm really curious. I mean, one of the fascinating things to me about the moves um, to delink the dollar and gold is that you know, it did many things, um, uh, weaken the dollar, um, certainly favored American exports. It also gave the Fed a lot more room to play, you know, to print money, to, to, to run monetary policy in a way that led to some good things, but also arguably got us to this stage of kind of peak financialization where you've just got this enormous corporate debt bubble. And you really, it, it's kind of hard to imagine at this stage where the Fed can go from here in terms of the tools in the toolbox, and, and you start to get into linking monetary policy and fiscal policy, which in an ideal world should happen, but also has the risk of becoming quite politicized. Um, you know, many of us here might think that hey, Yellen and Biden have uh, and and Powell are, are now going to actually do good things with monetary policy potentially, and the linking of fiscal policy. But you know, if that gets politicized that could also lead to a sharper pivot point in the global monetary system. How, how can you make these sorts of um, constructive shifts at a time when there are so many fewer, I think, tools in the toolbox, or am I missing something here?
3: Well, that's a really big question. And I, I start by I don't know the answer, but I, I, I think that one of the significance of the moment of de- linking the dollar from gold was to unleash all kinds of forces that didn't exist before. In fact, at Bretton Woods, they linked the dollar to gold to provide both stability and predictability, um, and and you know, and lack of discretion. It it was a firm rule. And, you know, up until 1971, the time of the Camp David meeting, there were very few international banking crises. I mean, I'm not sure there were any, certainly of the kind that we had afterwards. But once the dollar was delinked, basically the lid came off the box in terms of all the things that the financial system could do. And I think, Rana, you're absolutely right. On the positive, on the negative side, it led to enormous financialization. It, it perverted the, what the financial system should be for. You know, it took away the prime purpose of investing in productive activity and made making money on money, making trading money for, for its own sake um, a, a, a massive casino industry. On the positive side, though, it allowed globalization to proceed because it helped to insulate the domestic economies, which otherwise would have had to be lashed to fix currency values. And so we are at this point that you eloquently described in which we have enormous financialization. We have no discipline other than the fear of a crisis um and uh uh i think that this somehow we have to get a grip on this and and the, the the moment now is very right because because of the pandemic mm. the way that the fiscal engines have been gunned around the world and the prevalence of very loose a very low interest rates has created a tsunami of liquidity um, that that has to be that, that, that has to be dangerous at some point I, I don't know exactly when so the new era will not only be one that will have to encompass digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and and the rise of china but it will have to come to grips with the most fundamental things about finance, which is really how to how to orchestrate fiscal and monetary policy such that uh, prices uh, have some meaning yeah. and we don't enter an era of inflation and th- of real inflation. And that is also an analogy to 1971, because inflation played a huge part in the overvaluation of the dollar. In the need to delink the dollar from gold, and then in the subsequent decade in which the whole monetary system really fell apart.
1: Let me let me ask a, a question, and and I'm going to pose it to Bob and to, to Jeff. Um, you know, the the books that I write tend to be about policy process, how how things get done in the United States government, and. For that reason, as I read this, I was I was struck by how well it illustrated some of the things that I've seen in the policy process. You had brilliant people who were deeply flawed. You had people who are right about certain major changes that, that seem prescient when you look at where we are today. Um, you have people who were wrong. Uh, and in fact, the solution that they came to didn't last, but it did get them through the period that they were in. Um, and of course, it did mark um, a transition point. Um, you know, I think a lot of times when people write commentaries about policymakers in Washington, they sort of think there's, you know, grade an A or B, you know, they get it right or they get it wrong. Um, and actually, it's much more complicated and abstract than that. Um and you know, and one of the things that's so interesting to me about this book and the way that you tell the story, Jeff, is, you know, Nixon denigrated whole parts of, you know, the international economy. What do I care about, the Lyra kind of thing? Kissinger said, well, I'm a neophyte when it comes to economic issues. Fortunately, he had Bob at his at his side. Conley was kind of a protectionist. Burns didn't know really where he was. (laughs) Schultz was, Schultz was kind of Chicago school to the core, uh, leave it to the markets. Um, You know, to, to, you know, it was a, it was a pivotal moment, but it, it represents the, how the sausage gets made. You know, when you look back at it, Bob. Do, you know, when you 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 were there, do you do you do you do you see that? You know, was the, was there somebody there you thought they they kind of got this more right than the others?
2: Uh, it's a tough question, but the answer I think is uh, that Volker really probably understood the system and how to uh, stabilize it and create a new system better than the others. He was really a master of the international monetary system at that point. And the others had relatively little experience in uh, in that area, I mean, comparatively speaking. I mean, they came from different backgrounds. Conley was not an economic type. Schultz was a labor uh, expert, um, Burns, new U.S. monetary policy, but really had not had the kind of experience internationally that uh, Volcker had had. So I, I tend to think Volcker was the guy, and this turned out to be the case in the end, Volcker and Schultz were really the two people uh, on whom Nixon relied uh, the most. The other the other point is that Volcker understood, whereas Conley, wanted to push as hard as he could, as long as he could. Volker understood that you have to in order to come up with a lasting solution, or at least a solution to get us through the current impasse or crisis. You had to work with other countries. Um, and don't forget, he was the one who, right after Camp David, I wrote the cable to from Nixon to the other heads of state who had not been informed about this, mind you. They woke up. Uh, to the surprise that the united states was delinking the dollar from gold the chancellor of germany the prime minister of britain so over the weekend i and two others for seven hours stayed on the phone and worked out a cable so their ambassadors could alert them um, so they wouldn't be totally surprised nonetheless they were um, volcker volcker understood that you needed to, to do this and i think one of the things if there's a lesson is that while we may regard China as a major competitor, as we did some of these other countries at the time, not to the same degree, you have to work with other countries to have a stable global economic order. And as many differences as we have with China, we're gonna have to work with them. So while we deal with our domestic issues, concerns about inflation, these very large debts, we're gonna have to work with China in particular and our European allies and Japan to make whatever future system emerges um, viable. And the last point I'd make is really goes to a point that Jeff cited about Pete Peterson. Um, it's extremely easy to blame other countries for our problems, but the key to our success in stabilizing the system and demonstrating that our democratic order our market oriented order can succeed is for us to deal successfully with our domestic issues and i think it is one of the things that troubles me most about the current environment is that if you blame others you do not sufficiently emphasize the need to deal with our own uh necessities in terms of improving our technology, turning out more STEM um, graduates, dealing with the, the domestic challenge we ha- challenges we have on racial uh, inequities, on uh, economic inequities, on a whole range of internal issues. Unless we can deal with those, we're not going to be able to get the unity at home or the credibility abroad to, to really lead in setting up the new system. It's not a technical thing, it's it it requires credibility and success at home in dealing with important issues to have credibility internationally to lead in setting up a new system and i think jeff talks about this and i think that's one of the lessons we're going to have to learn don't blame the others uh, unless we're able to deal much more effectively with our own internal issues so jeff similar
3: question yeah i To me, what was so interesting about the policy process was the presence of people who had um, real confidence in their uh, ideas and were in in, in an environment that was set so they could express them. I mean, they were very, very different, and it really was, uh, I think, a... um, Tribute to Nixon that he could orchestrate one policy out of it. And just to give you the most obvious example, the two giants in the administration were Connolly, who was an unbridled nationalist, you know, whose motto was, let's screw the foreigners before they screw us, who had no interest at all in the international monetary system in congenial relations with the allies, he simply was after a result that would advantage the U.S. And then, in contrast, you had Kissinger, who was the ultimate sort of global diplomat and understood the things Bob was talking about, uh, about the need for strong alliances and some agreement among powerful countries as to how the system should work and how it should be organized. And these two guys managed to get along really well because they respected one another's stature. Uh, Kissinger knew that he couldn't challenge Connolly head on. He had to figure out a way to make Connolly um, moderate some of his real bull in the China shop uh, policies. And Connolly had enormous respect for Kissinger. And Nixon played them off against one another so as to get exactly the right result. So um, I take away from this that the worst thing you could have is a group of people who all agree on the same course for the same reasons. Because we're dealing with stuff that is very complex and in the end unpredictable i don't think anybody can manage the global economy it's just too big it's too complex you know it's a kind of a biological adaptive system that you can't understand better than you can biology um so you need people who uh can work together as circumstances change and people who are bringing different things to the party in the case i talked about um The need to be very clear, and I think very tough when you're negotiating, which was Connolly, and then someone else to really understand the limits of using leverage and the need to corral everyone around, I mean, other countries around a certain policy. And as Bob said, that is really important now. In a way, it's, it's more important than it was then because the U.S. has much less leverage. I think that the men I wrote about was that point at which we realized as a country, as a government, that the second the post-war environment was over, the U.S. doesn't call the shots unilaterally. And if it tries, it might succeed in the short run, but it, it will regret it. And that is much, much truer today. We've got two, three
1: minutes left. So, Rana, I'm going to ask you to ask Jeff a brief question for which he will have a briefish answer.
0: Okay. Um, Well, first of all, I'm feeling a little bit optimistic, to be honest, um, about these three lessons, heterodoxy, industrial policy, working with allies. I feel like the administration is vectorally going in in that direction. the big difference, aside from what we already talked about with financialization and maybe not having as many tools in the central bank toolkit, seems to me to be intangibles. This kind of massive shift from a tangible economy to an intangible economy, which is just inherently more decentralized. You know, you've got the platform giants with network effects that we, we can't understand. I mean, witness the Supreme Court throwing out the uh, Facebook case, because, you know, it's really, it's it's just hard to make the case around antitrust at this moment. I mean, they're, they're you know, digital currencies, we have no idea what they're going to look like. Um, the, the power of meme investing to shift the markets. How, how has that shifted fundamentally the challenge that this administration may be going through relative to the Nixon administration, despite all the similarities you've outlined?
3: Well, the shorter answer is, I think that the global economy has become much more complex and to me that translates into you know bob and i were talking about the Volcker group and the all the studies that they did um i don't know i i, I mean i'm not close to the administration but i don't know whether they have uh that mechanism in place to examine not i don't think you, you can know exactly what's going to happen but you can begin to think about how the ball could bounce in different situations. I mean, what happened, just to take maybe the almost obvious case, suppose that central bank digital currencies emerge in full force. Su- suppose that China really takes that lead. Mm. What is that What is that going to mean? I mean, it, if you just read the press, there are a million views, but inside the government, this ought to be harnessed to a handful of possible scenarios. Mm. But the other thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really important is this that the Nixon administration was playing real hardball here with the dollar. But there was no doubt in their minds about what the global economy should be in terms of its degree of openness. Mm. Um, and and you know, I remember when I started writing this book, a friend of mine says you're going to glorify Nixon's America first. And I said, no, I'm not, Trump's America first strategy. And I said, no, no, there's a really big difference here is that they wanted to achieve something, but they had a much bigger picture. And that picture was, we have to have an open economy. There have to be open capital flows. um, The trading system has to be more open and, the real tragedy would be if the U.S. took measures that actually undercut those goals. Mm. So I would like to know from the, the administration, aside from the industrial policies that they're looking at, aside from how they're dealing with these cryptocurrencies or the, cent, or, the or the the uh, digital currencies for the central banks, um, what is their vision for the global economy? How? How open? Is it global? Is it regional? Mm. What kind of guardrails do we want to have in the most general sense? Because what what, what the Nixon guys did was, and, and Bob was in the middle of this, they never lost sight of a much bigger picture. And I worry a little bit that we can get so wrapped up in some of these very important uh, issues that, uh, you know, kind of lose sight of where we're headed or where we want to hit.
0: It's a great
1: point. It, it is a great point. And I hope you're taking good notes, Rana, and that it all ends up in your column. Um, uh, because, you know, the the thing that governments do least well is foresight. And uh, if you talk to senior officials, as I have over time, this is always what they complain about. This Volcker group is a, a, a bit of an exception to that. But the, I think one of the big parallels between the period covered in the book and today is we knew we were at the end of an era and we didn't know what was coming next. Mm-hmm. And that we, we, we couldn't be sure about what was coming next, but we knew we had to prepare for it in some way. Uh, I'm not sure that's going on in the United States government right now, but if it is not going on, we're guaranteed to be blindsided. And so, you know, having these kind of conversations, um, uh, flawed as they may be in some of their outcomes, is, is absolutely essential. It's why this book is essential. It's called Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy. Uh, Jeff Garton is the author. You can get it wherever you get books. I strongly urge uh, that you do so because it really brings this to life. Um, in a way that you you heard briefly illustrated here as Bob was talking about you know writing these 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 uh, wires that went out to the various embassies um, that kind of thing makes this sort of pulse with life and makes it more relevant to today um, you should read it uh, for those of you who want to find out what else we've got coming up in the future go to the DSrnetwork.com. Uh, If you click on membership, you can help support conversations like uh, this one. Uh, And in the uh, interim, I want to thank you very much, Bob. And I want to thank you, Rana. And I want to both thank and congratulate you, Jeff, on three days at Camp David. It is a real tour de force. um, And it is something that I think not only uh, will do well, but it should do well. Uh, If you're involved in these areas, you need to read this book. Uh, So thanks to all of you and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.